Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A-Time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Jeff Tambroni to the Philacrosophy Podcast. Jeff is the head coach at Penn State and uh, really fired up to talk lacrosse with you today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. All right, so how's life treating you right now? You uh, staying busy in this uh, crazy period? Yeah, you know, it's, it's obviously just a unprecedented time, but I've, I've had this conversation with a number of people. You know, you and I share the same thing. We got three kids, um, and, and when you're in the profession of lacrosse, you rarely take a pause or a break. There really isn't one. Even when the season ends, you kick right back into recruiting season, travel season, um, having this time with my kids, ages 18, 16, and 12, you know, there's two buckets. You know, the one bucket is I, I, I desperately miss the competition, the camaraderie, and being around our guys and the relationships that you can, you can develop when you're going through the course of a season because some of those are peaks, some of those are valleys, some, you know, anxious moments and frustrating moments. But at the end of the day, <clears throat> that's what we live for. The other side of that is, uh, having been home with my wife, Shell, and, and three kids, watching them go through their, um, you know, their shift into a remote education, just spend a little bit more time with them. And, and then having a chance to communicate with our staff and team in a different way um, has actually been enjoyable to some degree. So I, I think all good. We're, we're spending a lot of time in the morning and afternoon and just trying to stay as connected as possible and doing the best job we can with the circumstances that have been presented to us. It is it has been a blessing to be able to spend this kind of uh, family time. It's uh, it's kind of a once in a lifetime, hopefully, uh, but yeah. it's been nice. Um, I was showing you some videos earlier of uh, all the backyard, all the backyard lacks I've got going on. <laughs> um, what uh, what do you got going on in the backyard? You you been playing some backyard sports with the girls or what? You know, it's funny that you asked. They, they were out there the other day, and my my wife and I were looking at each other and. and and she said, are they actually doing this? Because I think that's the one thing. I think you have 
you're still hanging on. I mean, I think you and, and your family, just looking at some of those videos of the sport court in the backyard or uh, the chalk lines of a lacrosse field out in the, in the, uh, in the road out in front of your, your house. I think, I think you're a throwback in that. But, but most of us, um, we talk about what it used to be like, quote unquote, back in the day, but rarely really put our kids in that opportunity to do this. They're moving on to, to more structured events. But yesterday we were out there playing two-on-two -two street hockey uh, with my daughters and they, they they played a little round of of uh kind of a home run derby so to speak in the backyard and then we went out and transitioned grabbed some hockey sticks and a tennis ball and played two on two uh street hockey which was just you know it brought me back to the day so uh may, maybe following in the Monroe footsteps to to a certain degree I don't know if it's going to continue on after uh, the, the, the virus or quarantine, but it was, it was a whole lot of fun being out with the kids, just no rules, or we were making up rules as we went on, um, yeah. and just having a whole lot of fun competing, playing. It was awesome. I usually make up the rules. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I'm notorious for making up rules as we go on. Absolutely. <laughs> um, all right, switching gears. Um, this year, give us something that you were really into something that a uh, drill, a skill, a concept, you know, anything that you were kind of into that that's just like, or, or anything now, just something that's piquing your interest on some, on something that you can share with us um, just to kind of get into your mind a little bit. Yeah, I think it's probably less about lacrosse. I mean, the older I get, uh, probably the less time and effort I put into you know, the X's and O's, and I think you have to put you know, your, your, your fair share of time trying to organize your team so that your language can exist. Everyone can speak the same language. You and I were talking before we got on this, uh, this Zoom call about just what you say is not always necessarily what they hear. What's in your mind is not necessarily the visual in their mind. Um, so I think that's, that's an, really, it's an important foundation, and that foundation I don't think you can ever get away from. You have to have a unified language, a unified system, and then you have to allow your kids to just enjoy the opportunity to go out, read and react, and compete within it, utilizing the strengths, trying to stay away from as much as possible the weaknesses, and, and then grow from there. The other side of this is just um, the opportunity to, to kind of develop and and, and learn in a different way. And the older I get, the, the more emphasis or more need I, I find in just, just connections, just finding relationships and finding connections uh, from a 50-year-old man down to an 18, 19, 20-year-old young man. Um, it, it's challenging. And I, but I think that uh, this is not in any way, shape, or form new. But I think the older I get, the more importance I, I put in this. The other side of it is just having kids growing up and going through this both in the recruiting realm and now going into college i've learned so much kind of about the eyes or the perspective of, of what it's like to be a student athlete and and have been grateful for that opportunity so trying to put myself in their shoes the more the older i get and uh, try to empathize a little bit more about what's going on the world is a challenging place it was when we were growing up um so i don't think new but i just trying to just kind of continue to recreate and enhance the opportunity of our coaching staff to be close with our teammates and be in this thing together. Um, it has made my profession a lot more enjoyable. I mean, I, I, I'd say if I'm on the, the pendulum of um, conservative or liberal, I'm definitely more on the, the, the pendulum end of conservative in terms of the way I coach. But over the last number of years, I've really enjoyed 
the opportunity to be with our guys. It's, it's a different generation, but I, I think as enjoyable or more enjoyable uh, than, than the last generation, as long as we adapt and move with them. So I'm, try, I'm trying, to, trying to keep up with it and our guys. And I think over the last number of years, I've really enjoyed the shift, the pendulum shift, to try to be a little bit more connected with our guys and have a little bit more fun throughout the course of the season. When you talk about this generation and the last generation, how, how do you, where do you draw the line? And, and how do you describe those generations um, if you were to talk, sort of characterize yeah. them? Yeah, I, it, it, it bothers me to a point where I, I hear people talk about this quote-unquote generation. And, and when they speak about it, it's more admonishment. It's more disappointment about the way they, they manage their time or waste their time because this is the way we did it. And this is a completely different set of circumstances uh, that these young men and women are, are being faced with. And I, I say it's not these young men and young women, it's the parents of our generation that have created this angst and anxiety and pressure uh, to have to do certain things. So yeah, I would just say, I, I look at them and they're, they're extremely bright, they're innovative, they're creative, uh, they, they certainly go about things like just just like we talked about. They're not playing kickball or kick the can or two on two hoops out in the uh, the neighborhood cul-de-sac as much now as they used to be. But there's different ways that, that these young men and women are going about their business, uh, much more efficient in the way they do it and their use of technology. And uh, so so what I've tried to do is just recognize that there's just so much oversight on these young men and young women, and try to step back a little bit and not necessarily meet them in their turf, but meet them halfway. I think there's a way that we can do this so we can bring them a little bit closer to being a little bit more accountable and a little bit more responsible. Um, and at the same time, I have to recognize that there's different ways to do things and maybe more efficient and also more fun. And, and if I think we could, we could get there on more common ground, we're all going to be better off versus telling these guys, this is the way it used to be. So this is the way you have to do it. Right. And the way it used to be, was that our parents told us to go out and play. Yeah, and now 100%. the way it is, is we tell our kids to go out and get your reps in. And it's just, it's more about work and it's more about structure and less about play and less about freedom to make your own decisions and make your own game and make your own rules. And, um, you know, that's not, that's not the fault of that generation like you just referenced. It's really the parents of this generation which is really why in my backyard I'm trying to get as many games going as, as possible because it's, it is pure joy to be able to just play. Um, and honestly, I think it actually is the best developer um, on top of pure joy. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I know I'm guilty of it. My wife played Division One sports. We're both guilty of it, of talking to our kids about what we think the next level should look like. And in order to get there, you're going to need to do this. So I, I would ask you in return, just in terms of your kids, I mean, you see, I saw the film of some of the lacrosse going on in the front, front yard and some of the stuff going on in your sport court. Do you find that they truly love the game or have you created the environment both in the, the, the front road and in the backyard that you still need to encourage them to kind of go out and get their quote-unquote reps in? Um, I think they really love the game. And I don't ask them for reps. I used to. I was guilty of it like everybody else. Um, I was all about breaking it down, figuring out the smartest progression to, to learn how to do anything. 
And I had expectations of, or I set the expectation of, if you want to get here, you have to do this, that, and the other thing. You got to work hard. You better be, you better be thoughtful. And over the last couple of years, I've, I've started to dive into the, the power of free play. And as it turns out, I believe that it is a stronger model on every single level. It doesn't mean that structure doesn't need to happen. Structure is important, but it's important secondarily. The first, the first piece is to, to have a love of it and to gain fluency. All the two-man game stuff we were talking about earlier, that's fluency. That's the ability to understand how to manipulate your man and manipulate a, a, a switch and at the same time see the other side of the field. You, you can't teach that. You can't teach feel. Um, and so I've, I've, uh, there's a guy named Ted Creighton. I did a podcast with him, I don't know, nine months ago, who is, runs a soccer program out of Minnesota called Joy of the People. I listened to this podcast of his, and then I did one with him. And I was already going in this direction of free play, and he just put me over the top in such a cool way. And he basically talks about structure creates accuracy. Free play creates fluency. Accuracy is important, but you don't get better because of accuracy. You get sharper, but not better. So you can do dodges against cones and work on your footwork, but it doesn't teach you the feel of how to beat somebody. And so I've kind of gone in this direction um, heavy where I've tried to do everything I can to put my players of the teams I coach as well as my kids in a position where we're just having fun and we're learning. And, you know, honestly, we've played a lot more two-on-two -two basketball this break than we have lacrosse. But we, my kids like lacrosse, so we do work on it. But, I, again, we try to do live stuff and make it – we try to gamify as much as we can. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think if, if – when I look back at my career at Cornell and at Penn State now, I think when I was at Cornell, I certainly went more structured. There was a definitive system in place. Oh. You know, when one guy did one thing, somebody else did another thing. And I'm sure at times, you know, you, you, you've spent time with the Rock and Roll Romero play within that system. I'm sure at times it's probably less fun and um, certainly sometimes effective and sometimes not so much. And, I, and in the last four or five years, this is exactly I, where I would agree with you is just, there still needs to be a foundation. As I say, you still talk about X's and O's. You still have to have everybody on the same page. There needs to be a, a universal form of communication that everyone understands. There needs to be, if I go here, well, then you need to go there to a certain degree to establish direction um, or there would be chaos. But where I think I've changed the most as a coach is just the utilization of creativity, like what you talk about free play. Allow as long as it's within the system as long as it fits within the system and it doesn't hurt what we're trying to do or someone doesn't stand out instead of trying to be a part of the system. Um, we have to, as coaches, and I found myself, have to allow these guys to utilize strengths. This is another thing that just back in the day versus modern day, the things that these guys can do with their sticks and, and, and their creativity is, I mean, there were a handful of guys back when you and I played that could do this. The gate certainly changed the way we thought about the game, but it was a long time before that was accepted by kind of a universal side of, of things. There was few people that could do this nowadays, you know, I would say it's, it's probably half and half the guys that can do it and do it really well. And it's a lot more fun and just truly more effective. 
when these guys are throwing behind the back passes at times, again, as long as it fits within the system. So I'm going to be interested to watch that. I think that's, I think it makes a lot of sense. I would agree with it. It's, just, it's the style or structure that we've tried to, to, to follow. And I think, again, it's, it's been a lot more enjoyable. We've had a lot more fun. And I think our success rate has increased significantly because of the combination of those things. Canadians have already, they, 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 they grew up in less structure. Um, you know, they play a game. The game that we're playing in the street is box. Anyways, I mean, it's a small net. So as soon as you're playing a small net, it's the small net that makes the confines tight. A lot of people will think, well, the boards and the glass can find the space. Well, that literally is true, but that's not really the, the space. The confines are really relative to the small net because then everything has to shrink and everything has to happen in there. Um, and you think about the skills of the Gates and Marichek and some of these guys, and, and really Shove Park, right? I mean, you know, when yeah. you think about the way people developed, to me, the hard part is not being able to do the skills. You, you can learn any skill you want. You can, I can, if you give me time, I can teach anybody anything. The question is, will you use the skills? Because that's the hard part is the having the processing to see and recognize the opportunities to use a skill and then making the decision to use the skill, which is oftentimes confidence also. Yeah, and, and repetition and also just given the opportunity to, to provide either positive or ne negative feedback. And I think you, like you referenced Show Park where I grew up, um, and it was the summer indoor facility and you know, there was, there was reinforcement there, both positive and negative to do the right thing in, in, a, in a system that didn't include creativity. But over time, we believed in it because it just worked. And I'm saying what worked was just not utilizing those, um, those skills that might be considered a little bit more creative or a little bit, um, you know, in, 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 a, in a fancier variety. Whereas nowadays, I also think that there's, there's two parts to that. One, I would definitely agree. You got to have, uh, and you got to have that skill too. You have to have reinforcement, even if things don't go well, that the timing was right. The timing was right to do it. The skill's just not developed enough to do it at the right time. And right. that's where I feel like I probably failed, um, you know, in my early years. And still to this day, I, I still probably get frustrated at times. I think there's a time and a place for that. Um, but I encourage and correct when those, when those opportunities uh, arise. Yeah. I think that, by the time kids get to playing for you, you know, your job is to get the team organized to go compete. Yeah. It's more along, it's more growing up where you want to put all of your time into the less structure because by the time you're 18, 19, 20, even 16, 17, 18, when you're like becoming a serious player, it's time to work on your accuracy. It's time to work on your reps. It's time to get into a system that, that a coach is going to put you in. It truly is. That's how you win. Um, it's more about, along the way, along the journey of getting a chance to go make a mistake, to go play, to try things. You know, you think about two-on-two -two basketball. You learn how to play. If you play enough two-on-two -two basketball, you learn how to do the next counter to how this guy is defending you or vice versa. And it's that feel that you don't have time. You know, it's hard to structure that in practices. You know, I think back to the fact that, like, when I had youth coaching for me, you know, I liked my youth coaches, but I don't think they were like awesome youth coaches. I don't know if they, I thought they were terrible youth coaches. It was kind of irrelevant because I played so many sports anyways. It didn't, my youth coach wasn't going to make or break me. 
And I think that's, that's just a concept that's sort of been lost upon this generation because of that. I, I could not agree more. And I think this is more of a U.S. soccer model, certainly a European soccer model. I should say it's probably more relevant there that their best coaches, as they see, should be down at that you know, eight, nine, 10, 11 year old kids when you're um, developing those skills. And, and I would be curious. So, so I would absolutely agree with that concept. And um, at that level, that's where the skills are, are probably most important. That's your foundation. And so we've thought a lot about this as a, as a, as a staff during the last number of years when it comes to skills and athleticism. And I would be curious as to your take on this. But recruiting someone who's a little, quote, unquote, raw, uh, coming out of high school and coming into, you know, if you want, if your system is, is a little bit more skill oriented, a little bit more finesse oriented, um, to develop those skills through your collegiate years, I think it's you're it's easy to say, hey, look, he's raw, but extremely athletic. He'll develop these skills over his collegiate years. I found that there are some, but it's a very small percentage that can develop the kind of skills that when you're looking at someone who's considered raw in your evaluation is going to develop them or, or dramatically increase that skill level to fit what you're looking for within the vision of the framework of your offense. Same thing. If someone's considered an average athlete, to think in the next four years, you're going to be able to increase the athleticism. Now, I think you can increase both, both skills and athleticism at a, at a, at a logical rate, but you either have it or you don't. We've gotten to the point now where we're recruiting. If we feel like someone's raw and they don't fit into our system offensively, and we don't think that does is, is a good fit for us offensively. It's rare that someone's going to develop those kind of skills or refine those kind of skills through those collegiate years. And that's, you're talking about four years even with a tremendous amount of reps, you either have it or you don't to a certain degree. And I'm not trying to take away the opportunity for people to go to college and continue to keep working, but it's more refinement than it is development. If you don't have it before you get to college, what what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's so specific to your roster and what you're recruiting and who else you're looking at. So if you were to eliminate that and just talk about, can you develop somebody? Yeah. IQ wise during the course of their uh, four years, I think you can, um, and I would have normally back, you know, in, in, in Denver, that's what I had to do, and we were able to do that pretty well and develop some really skilled kids. However, it obviously was a lot better when you started getting Mark Matthews and Jeremy Noble and guys like that, but uh, if you could recruit guys like that. But, the, but I would say that my, my belief is those games that you saw us playing in the street is how I would do it, no question. I would do that. I would play. I would play games with small nets, no equipment, tennis balls, and I would do it a lot. That's what I would do because it literally gives you more decision-making opportunities. And decision-making is the decisions to use skills. Have you ever? Do you remember doing something as an athlete where you did something and you were like, "Wow, I, I can't believe!" It. I remember like feeding somebody behind the back for my very first time ever. I hadn't practiced doing that. I never really thought about it. I was just posted up. My brother cut, I popped the BTB to him. And I was like, wow, that was pretty sick. Now I think I'd seen Tim Nelson do it, right? But, but it just happened. I, when we think back to our own athletic experiences, things do materialize in, in people. And it's just unconscious learning that I think is a huge expediter 
of understanding how to play, how to feed, how to handle. Um, and when we try to rep stuff out, we're repping out specific things, but it never really happens the same way twice, which is kind of why in games, like, you know how games can take a life of their own? You know, you, a game all of a sudden gets away from you or it gets away from the other team or whatever, and you're, you've got something, your team can do it beautifully in practice. But then for whatever reasons, it's a different matchup and there's something about a game that takes a life of its own. That's, that's the uncontrollable part that structure doesn't, doesn't really help. Yeah, just I'm going to finish the, the, the part about skills. Now I would agree with you. I think you can develop someone, but I think if the foundation of your skill or athleticism is not there before you, you enter into your collegiate years, this is my point. Yeah. Um, you, you're, you're not going to catch that, that drastic of, of, an, of an increase or improvement. Going on to this topic, and I think it's a great one, um, and this is why I think it's important, especially in our game. I think the sport of football, and I think there are a lot of times that there are and a lot of coaches out there that coach our sport like football. Um, and I think in, a, in some ways, Jeff Dambroni used to do this where it used to be, you know, more X's and O's based on the whiteboard in, in the film room. And this is where you need to move. But this is where I've come over the last probably seven or eight years is that just one play may never rear its head the exact same way ever again. Right. So if you're teaching this particular play and you're being so specific on how it runs versus what you talk about, the feel or the ability to be able to read and react at full speed. Right to a different you know, set of circumstances. It might happen two or three different ways. Can you read and react instinctively with the feel? Should I go above it? Should I go below it? Should I step back? Should I you know, pull my head and drive into it? I think that's, that's a big part of this, the creativity. And if done over and over and over again at full speed, without having to do it the exact same way, more like three yards in a cloud of dust, more in a football uh, style, of practice and preparation you're going to be prepared for the fluidity or creativity of the sport of lacrosse and that's again this is where i think we've changed a lot in trying to just develop that you know you talk about just structure versus free play you need the structure to communicate how these things are going to work or what kind of scenarios you're going to be you're going to be put in and then that's it and then you're going to have to feel your way through these things because it may never happen Right. Like we just talked about, not not one more time throughout the course of the season. It's important to just make sure that these guys are loaded um, with that feeler concepts versus just um, the structure of of just what needs to be done at that moment. I used to really believe as a coach that it was my job to make things work, to make things right, to make a yeah. drill run the way I wanted it to run, to make something, make an offense work the way I wanted the look to work, and. Yeah. Uh, um, I've, I think that a good coach can do that, but I'm not sure that that's actually as productive as I always thought it was because I think it's better to let it not work and show them later on film so they understand what you want, but actually let it not work because it not working is really as powerful of a teacher as it worked. Or even one step further, again, the concept of this is what's in your mind. So when Jamie Monroe watches something, you see this. So as the play develops and the ball swings through X, in your mind, the quote-unquote right response for the backside is X. You're, you're thinking of something, and, and if one of your players does this, you say, yep, that's perfect. If they don't do this, if it wasn't in your mind, right. doesn't make it a wrong response – it's just a different response. And, and I would say this to our guys, as long as you can explain to me, okay, this is why I did this or didn't do this, we have to fit into our offense. But, but there's got to be a rationale. So 
And that's how I got I to gotta continue to step back and say, this is how I would have thought. It doesn't make it wrong, but this is how I thought it, it should have been done because this is the way I see this thing developing within our course of our offense. Yeah. And you chose not to do this as long and, and empowering your kids to just be able to say, coach, well, this is why I didn't cut. This is what I saw in there, man. That's, that's a, that's a powerful, um, the autonomy of that, the ownership of that is, you know, that, that creates uh, the next step of that level of creativity and ownership that I think is real important for offense that makes it totally guys playing. Yeah. What you have in your mind and then what you tell athletes like not to do. Yeah. You know, somebody made a quote like Lyle Thompson didn't get to how he was by being told what not to do all the time. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair um, comment. Yeah. All right, interesting. I got a, I got a topic I want to chat about. Um, shooting. I did a podcast with this guy, Mike Mobison. Um, he does analytics and stats. Oh, yeah. You, you, you've, you've seen that. He might have done something. I know. You know? Yeah. yeah, he's. we've worked with him for the last two or three years. He's fantastic. Brilliant guy. Yeah. Uh, for anybody that hasn't listened to that podcast, go back and listen to it. It's sick. But there's something interesting in there that I want to talk about. And, th- and this is basically, uh, I'm going to quote him on this topic. Canadians have shot at 34% in change for o- like the last 10 plus years. And Americans have shot, individual on the cross, at 28% in change for the last 10 plus years. It's been very s- s- uh, consistent. Like literally, like every single year, it's like the same. Um, if you think about the way Americans, the way we, sh- if you think about that difference, that's a 21, about a 20, 20, 21% difference in shooting percentage. And Mike was like, if, if this was like in basketball and there was a population from some country somewhere that like shot 21% better than everybody else, everybody would just find out what they were doing and go do it. And I'm not sure that's happening. And I say that because having watched a lot of box lacrosse, my son having played up there, the, the, the one thing Canadians always do is shoot on goalies. They, they might shoot a lot, but I, I don't know if Canadians actually take more shots in their lifetime than Americans. Americans shoot a lot. Good shooters shoot a lot. But in practice, they probably shoot more, but they definitely – always shoot on goalies and you never hear Canadians talking about mechanics. They don't talk about hands back. They don't talk about mechanics. They talk about angle and what did the goalie do? How did you deceive the goalie? You know, the angle is your, their eyes on your stick, you know, that see different things in the eyes in your head. Um, You know, and it's almost like every shot becomes a data point on what the goalie did and they learn how to do, all of these different shots based on these concepts. And I feel like in our country, it's mostly mechanics and it's shooting on empty nets quite a bit. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that topic. First and foremost, we've worked with Mike, like I said, a couple, for a couple of years and have picked up a ton. Um, and I've definitely become entrenched in analytics over the last uh, probably three or four years. Um, you know, it can get to a point where it can, paralyze you because you're just analyzing so much of this so we've, we've tried to just walk the, the delicate line and make sure that what we have as coaches because I'm just interested in it yeah. um, great book out there called super forecasting about some of this stuff and in, in terms of not not necessarily shooting but but about what works both in personnel 
a lot of personnel directors um, are using this now in professional sports, and I thought that was it's a, it's a neat um, variation of how to use some of the numbers to just better predict. Uh, but but two things I think I've found interesting outside of just sheer stats that, that Mike has done and is, and is provided for Penn State is one, I think fear versus fearless. I think I think Canadians, especially the ones that come from, from a, a box across background, are fearless in their shooting attempts. If they get the ball saved, it's in the indoor game, it's probably more commonplace. So I think they're they're unconscious to a certain degree in terms of their ability to shoot, knowing that it's just going to take a volume of shots. I feel like versus the American way, um, it's almost expected to go in. I think you're more fearful when you shoot the ball um, because of the size of the goal, because of the size of the goalie. So I think they're they're a little bit icier in terms of their their approach. Canadians are, and uh, they they are not afraid to fail. Obviously, going against a little bit more of a of a challenge, the size of the goal, size of the goalies, and then reverting to the outdoor game is certainly a um a factor but I, I really feel like the mindset of the way they go about it they just get up there and there's, there's limited fear in there too and i think this is the obvious one and i think you can say it or you can do it and i think saying it and i think we all say it but truly getting yourself to the point where and i would agree with you like i, I listened to paul and gary gate talk about shooting mechanics so they did talk about mechanics and they do talk about mechanics but i would totally agree with you on the other side is that it's all about angles in the indoor game. And, and obviously, if you get yourself to a point where your stick or your body is in a position where you just don't have an angle for the size of the goal and the size of the goalie, it's just it's just common sense. That ball is going to have limited to no chance of going in. And we talk about this, and I think everyone talks about it um, in terms of the angles that you want to get your kids to shoot at. But But if you don't stress it to a point where it's, the number one priority and that's what we've gotten to that's the number one priority you know shot distance is certainly important but to a shot angle it's by far the number one priority and like you said like i think there's a lot of americans that shoot the ball you know in, in terms of velocity far greater than any canadian would ever think about um because of their mechanics you know i think it looks great in in some of the speed competitions or you bring the speed gun out there, but when it comes to just putting yourself in a position to increase uh, the percentage of your scoring based on just your angle, can your body and your stick, more importantly, like you talk about your stick, be in a position to have a higher percentage of scoring, that's it. So I'd say those two, two, two factors, we talked to our guys a lot about just being a little bit more fearless, but, but staying within the structure and by far the number one priority for us in the offensive end is making sure that the angle of where the shot ends up um, is acceptable. And that's clearly defined, clearly drawn out. Everyone knows exactly where it is. Um, and, and there's consequences if you do, consequences if you don't. And yeah. that is, I think, emphasizing that. The knowledge of it is one thing, emphasizing that over and over and over again is the most important, the priority of what we're doing offensively is, um, and, and Mike proves that, absolutely proves yeah. that. I did a podcast with this guy, Darius Kilgore. Do you know that name? Oh, yeah. Did you listen to that podcast by any chance? I did not. I did not. I like it. It's really cool. He talks a lot about shooting. You'd, you'd enjoy it. But one of the things he always says is every time you shoot, you're telling a story to the goalie. And it's true. And this is kind of what I'm talking what? about as far as, yeah. you know, there's the, and there's mechanics within the scope of these shots too. Like it's not the mechanics. I don't think mechanics matter. It's just like, I think the mechanics, there's a, there's, there's a lot of different shots. And 
one of the things that Darius always says also is, if you shoot with deception, you can hit a spot the size of a watermelon. If you shoot with just power and accuracy, you have to hit the side, a spot the size of a grapefruit. Now those, those fruits may be arguable, you might want, want some different sizes, but, um, but the point is well taken. You know, if you can handcuff somebody, then it, you don't have to hit a tight spot. Um, and so, um, I don't know, it's, just, it's pretty interesting to, when you start thinking about that. And I think that's a really big part, you know, of your comments of the fearlessness of Canadians. And I made this point earlier, when it's saved, it's a data point for them. They know what, what the guy just did so that next time they're going to do something different. Like that, that's the way they think about it. And it's like, yeah, I'm going to come down on my breakaway and I'm going to shoot it far side high and see what he does. And then from there, you just build. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting way to look at it. Did, did Mike talk about that data points in terms of his shooting or is it more analytical about uh, just stats that he's gathered and kind of has deciphered over the years? Yeah, it was, it, it was, it was, a, it was a, probably almost a couple of years ago. So I haven't talked to him in a while, but um, his point was if there's a population that's going to shoot 20% better, let's find out what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Changing gears. I want to talk about, in-game adjustments and get your how you think about that um in general with penn state and how it's kind of evolved over the course of time yeah so i say this like there's two sides uh, I, I that come to mind directly um one is the more animated or or um the more engaged I am with our guys on the sidelines, probably the worse I've done during the week of practice. The less animated, the less conversation I'm having, other than just affirmation or just quick adjustments, uh, the better job we've done through the course of week of practice. We should be able to step back and allow our guys to think based on the preparation and based on the repetition that we've gone through, not just through that week, but through the course of the year. Um, and it's important to allow those guys to think a little bit freer on the course of the of, of game day. The second part of that is this is offensively speaking. I'll speak from our offensive perspective. We, we, we run three base offenses um, through the course of the season and we will run all of them in the first half. So one of the things that we'll try to do is just run every offense that we have at some point with both of our midfields at some point to see what kind of response we get to the same degree that you're talking about data points, which I love that connection of shooting. That's what we'll do. What will they do with this when the ball is, you know, if, if we if, if our offense is just centered from dodges from behind or centered from dodges from the wings or centered dodges above the goal line, how will someone respond to that so that we can actually gather information? If you can't gather it before halftime, I think it's extremely difficult to make in quote unquote in-game adjustments. Um, it sounds good, but but having kids absorb that kind of information and then having 10 or six, if it's in the offensive end, 10 implement that at the exact same time with the exact same cadence and rhythm it's it's a lot more challenging than it might sound but if you can gather that information before halftime and then have a sensible conversation it's going to have to be two to three bullet points in the offense two to three bullet points in defense and then anywhere else like writing clearing then i think it's it's that's doable and that's what we try to do so we try to try to gather information give our best game plan by by tuesday to wednesday implement that to the course of the week try what we have offensively speaking we try everything just to make sure that we can gather gather information for riding and clearing more defensively we try what we think is our best 
um, and have a secondary plan and then make adjustments at halftime as needed. As the game goes on, I think the more adjustments you make, um, unless they're just finite moves of more personnel than it is uh, big picture items, I think the worse you're going to be, not the better you're going to be. So that's what we try to do. Yeah, interesting. So, and how do you, how do you uh, gain your data points on how they're playing stuff? Do you have an ability to have in-game video? Is that how you do it? I don't, I, I, I'm not there yet, nor do I want to be there. It's like, to me, um, that's, that's my job. So if I'm, it's, again, I go back to the football lacrosse conversation. I think in football, you know, I, you watch those guys on the sidelines and I respect the heck out of it, but, but it's, it's stop time. It's not free flow. It's stop time. So people are coming to the sidelines and you have in real time, you probably have, you know, anywhere from four or five minutes to maybe 10 minutes to have a discussion, which is our halftime. And if we had that on after every possession, I think it's completely different. But I think in real time, you have to teach your kids through the course of the week of practice and through the course of the game to be able to react and respond. And that's the coach's job to do the same thing. So, um, you know, we probably watch less of what we're doing, more of what they're doing in the first half, especially to figure those things out. And, and again, these are minor adjustments. We can adjust on certain things that go on through the course of the game, how we're going to present picks, where we're going to dodge from on the particular field, which offense do we think is going to be the priority versus secondary versus let's throw that one out. Um, so it's, it's probably more, it's not more, it, it's all of the visual and gut feel when we go into that halftime area. I, I don't, I feel like by the time you watch something, the game has moved on. It's changed two or three times over and it's bad. So, you know, maybe in years to come, um, we, we have not adopted or the, the technology or the innovation that, that those things have had. Not, I, I'm, that's just not the way I'm structured and built, but uh, yeah. maybe we're falling behind because of it, but it's not for me. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I get it totally. I think the, the only thing that's really hard is really knowing if they slid. <laughs> that's like on, on ground level, especially at the other end of the field. Yeah. You know, that's like, you know, you, and then you just got to probably rely on your, on your players, right, to, to be able to tell you. Yeah, I mean, after the game, we all do the same thing. You watch film, we'll watch it on Sunday morning, and then we'll bring it back out on Monday and reflect based on what happened. But then, then that's our job to, to coach and, and try to iron some of those things out on Mondays and Tuesdays. But, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. And, you know, it's not always foolproof. But I feel like if we can just present opportunities the same way, and you and I had this conversation offline the same way, I, I think we try to do this in-game adjustments the same way you would run your picks. You try to manipulate as much as you can to see what they're doing yeah. and then have conversations that you've already had throughout the course of the week in terms of what you think works best. Um, and and th those the, that that cadence and conversation has been much more successful for us. How much do you um, think about the adjustments of matchups within, you know, a game, like the one-on-one the -on -one adjustment of, you know, things that a player can do on either side of the ball to have better success against their matchup? Yeah, I think we attempt to, to that's information we'll attempt. It's like I have a game sheet and that's, Two things offensively. One, who's getting the long stick? Like, which guy do we want to – I think of that more of, like, end of quarters, out of timeouts, end of the game. Like, who do we want to attack? Who do we think is probably going to get a matchup that's going to be more favorable? Two, who's winning their matchup? So circle a guy on my game sheet to the course of the first half in terms of who we think is getting the best of that particular matchup. That's important information. If you don't have that going into halftime, you're probably not doing your job, giving yourself – 
you know, a chance to just feed. Some guys are just, you know, quote unquote in the zone or they just have a better matchup because of a, um, you know, physical disparity. So, so try to do that defensively. That's a tough one. And, you know, you think all week about who you think is going to match up on certain guys. Well, and change something mentally. Are you doing something to that guy or that matchup? That's just not going to be um, conducive down the long run, but you have to, sometimes you, 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 you see something on film and then, then when you, when you watch it or you're feeling it live, they're just much more athletic or much more powerful. So you have to make a matchup or slide quicker. Mm-hmm. And again, that's something that we'll talk about at the end of the first quarter defensively. If you're not making those adjustments early or defensively, you're probably going to run into a, a deficit. And we've been there. We've been there going into halftime and, and, and lived through those deficits. But uh, I think probably in the, in the defensive end, you have to, you have to react a little bit quicker down there and be more proactive offensively. You know, we hope our guys can go in there and just kind of read and react and then we can take information in terms of some of those specialty situations that go on during the game and take advantage of them um, when they arise. Yeah. Awesome stuff. Um, all right. Last, last topic. We, we really have no idea what's going to happen this summer. Um, right now there's a dead period in the NCAA through what, through Memorial Day or something like that. What, what, how long is yeah. it? Memorial Day. I think that's a, at the end of uh, at the end of May right now. And things are getting things are getting canceled. And I'm not going to try to get us to speculate on what's what's going to happen. In except for I have a question on in in recruiting in general. You know, you're going to get less of a chance to watch the next recruiting class. We already know that. I mean, I guess they could extend it into August, and maybe you'd kind of get that time back. Um, but do you see the September 1st being um, very different than it would be in the sense of like, you know, you just don't have the data points, you know, using that word again, on, on players. You got to see players. And the only film you've got now is from last fall and then last summer. And these kids are 22, so they're, you know, they're sophomores now. Anyways, what do you what do you sort of see as a, 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 do you see a slower process basically? Yeah, I think it's fact that when you get to September first, we're not going to have a chance to see it as much. Now, these kids will still have a chance to see colleges, right? September first is still it's always been their date of of kind of that starting point. So I think for them, they don't have the opportunity, obviously, to just prove, hey, this is who I am. Is there a good match? And I think that you're going to run into some issues. Some I think every coaching staff is going to be a little bit different. What we've tried to communicate as a coaching staff that just to your point, let's, let's not quote unquote speculate because we really have no idea. This is not something that we've been down before. And we, we can say, Hey, based on the last time this happened, this is exactly what we went. But I will say this, one of the mistakes that we've all made, I would say we've all probably made this. And I know we certainly are guilty of this at Penn state is you can recruit either too early too young before they've had a chance to develop or with too few uh, data points or, or information. And I, I know from our coaching staff discussion, we're, we're, we're going to try to remain patient. And I know this, we're probably going to be on the outside looking into certain kids who will sign early. Some schools will either have seen some of these guys play locally or growing up and they've done a good job of, of uh, storing some of that, some of those evaluations and they'll be a little bit quicker. Yeah. Um, but I, but I, I always go back to this. Typically guys find both schools and, and young men, they'll find it over time. Uh, yeah. They'll find the right place or the right fit. So 
I think patience is going to be one of the things It's just different. Everyone has to just come to the realization that it is just going to be different and not to anyone's um, doing, but we're just going to have to live within the, the realm of, of what we're being provided. And for us, without, a, without that information, with that lack of information, I think it's going to be important. The way we recruit, we try to put a lot of information into the um, to kind of accumulating who we think is going to be a good fit and not for a lot of different reasons. We all have different values. We all play lacrosse a little bit different. And I think it's going to be important for us to just remain patient and recognize from the mistakes that we made before the recruiting rules changed and just try to just push this thing off a little bit later. Yeah. And that was kind of the point. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of people out there who have kids that are 22s that are freaking out because they're in their seat, uh, they no film. You know, the summer is getting pushed back. It's it's unclear. You know, so tough. Yeah. It is. Hey, so I got a 22. I got a 22 in high school. I got a young lady who's a 22. Thankfully, she's she's already committed. But uh, but I empathize for families and kids. And you you can sense right now, based on the volume of emails and videos that we've received, the urgency slash panic, the anxiety that they're going through right now, trying to get ahead of it, and it's it's sad because it's it's your window and it is your window and uh but it it will all work out i'm confident yeah. it will all work out yeah i mean like you said there, there, there's a handful of players and i don't know if that handful is 25 or 50 that that everybody already knows about and and yep. they feel good yep. about. but 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 there's another 800 kids that are going to get recruited to play division yeah. and people aren't just going to like grab people that they don't have enough information on and you can't. And so therefore, Hey, maybe prospect, you know, maybe you'll be doing a few more prospect camps to see kids, you know, you'll the fall, you know, fall always kind of stinks anyways, just cause it's cold and sloppy and you know, it's not a great place and you, you don't even want to put that much stock in the fall. Um, yeah. You're gonna have to put a little more, but it's going to go right into next summer is my guess. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And, and maybe, maybe you just have to put a little bit more um, onus on films, maybe the following spring when they're seniors yeah. and sure. just recruit a little bit more creatively and, and just stay true to who you are, what you believe in, which is, which is going to require some information, but maybe just do it a little bit, um, a little bit later in the process. You see um, the use of um, other information to have a bigger impact on recruiting, such as vertical jump, 40 time, uh, 10 time, and all that kind of stuff, because because basically it's it's all you got right now. Yeah, not for us. You know, I sat in a pretty interesting meeting. I was able to sit, uh, our football staff put on a, um, invited the Cleveland Indians player development staff to come to Penn State, and they allowed uh, three coaches at Penn State to, to join in, in this conversation because they wanted feedback from the coaches um from our coaches at Penn State but we wanted to gather and that's where I got that that book super forecasting which is one of the ones that they said if, in terms of just player evaluation if you want to go into this this is a book that I would I would absolutely recommend and and what I found is that we're just so much different than football whereas football is just quick movements stop and pull back quick movements stop and pull back and if you're a wide receiver if you're just flat out faster than someone um these are things that they recruit on knee size, like the diameter of someone's knees, which I thought was, was a pretty interesting um, discussion to have about how much weight they can manage without injuring their knees um, and how much they can put on. But what I found is because we started talking about lacrosse and I just said, man, we don't use any of that. Some of the best players that I've ever coached. Certainly there are some, some 
outliers there like Max Seabald. He would, he would do well in any sport in any generation. He was just so athletic. So it's great and easy to see someone who's just got uncanny athleticism. But, but a lot of the other guys, like if I look at our best players right now, and this is no offense to them, but like you look at a Mac O'Keefe or a Grant Amen, they are, they are very good athletes, but to put them into a category to not recruit them because they run a five one forty versus a four eight forty, I think we would have probably missed out on guys who are just just innately talented in different ways. So I think because our sport is just so different, you don't have to leap uh, vertically to to put a ball in a basket. You don't have to to push or deadlift four or five hundred pounds. You just don't need to do that. Some of those things will help if you have some of the other skills. Yeah. or passion to compete and play at a particular place or a particular game. So for us, I know we will not look anywhere into any of that stuff, but that will be one staff's decision to do that. Right. I remember seeing all those stats at the 205 camps, you know, like only a certain certain crew would get the 40-yard uh, and the vertical. <laughs> I wasn't on that list. Those are the days. <laughs> <laughs> but I remember like looking one year, Andy Shea showed me, and I was like, all right, I didn't. I saw this kid. He looked athletic. I thought he was terrible. And then this other kid that I thought was really good. You know, I remember Mike Law. Remember Mike Law played for me at Denver. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, he was like a five one forty. He had an unbelievable change of direction, and more importantly, an incredible feel. And that's what you don't get. At. Yeah. But then again, yeah. they can't get it right in the NFL draft. That's true. That's true. I still think speed is speed. I mean, that's the one thing. If I knew a guy could run a four four forty, you'd probably take a, a greater chance on him than really someone jumping up higher. Yeah. No doubt. Well, interesting stuff, Jeff. I, I can't tell you how much I treat, appreciate talking lacrosse with you, man. Yeah, it's always, always, uh, always interesting, but I always find a number of nuggets uh, based on your approach to the game, and I appreciate you having me on here today. Thanks, man. Tell uh, Shell and the fam I say hi. Same. Thanks, Jamie. All right, take Great care. talking to you. Bye, man. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the Air Gate? Well, that was me and Gold that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent. Premium watches, without the premium price. Check us out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com.